Uh, Jonathan, how many of your gangs here so far, do you know? Uh, if you're part of the Discover the Nations uh, conference, uh, why don't you stand for a minute? And stay standing if you're a Western student or other. Watkin, Skagit over here. Eastern, right? Okay, where else are you from? I see Western folks. Where are you guys from? Where? Yeah, say it louder. Where? Is that the Central Wildcats? Yes, okay. Okay, so Western. Okay, so where else are they coming from, Jonathan, when, once they all get here? Okay, so for, um, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, Jonathan, who is our campus missionary to international students, um, and his team are putting on this Discover the Nations thing. We're one of a number of them around the nation. First one in the Northwest. And so Jonathan grabbed it um, by the proverbial tail and went for it. And uh, so they'll be spending the next three days together with the three-day weekend. So I want to pray for you, Jonathan, and for your team and for your students, okay? So join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are the God of vision, and you say where there is no vision, people perish. We thank you that you've put vision in Jonathan and his team's heart, that you've put vision in our sister ministries around the nation to help equip men and women to know how to love and welcome the international, the visitor amongst us. And I pray, Lord, that this weekend that you'll be giving the team strength as they're teaching, that you'll be giving the whole group encounters with your love and your vision for others, and that, Lord, you'll pour out your spirit in special ways there, rearranging hearts, rearranging minds, rearranging directions. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can be honored by you to host this and we thank you for all the hands, all the workers, all the cooks, everybody that's putting so much in to making a stronger welcome to international students. So we give you our love and we pray you'll be glorified. And Lord, we pray too for our time in the word tonight, that you'll just simply strengthen our hearts, strengthen our minds, deepen our understanding of what you have and what you are doing in the world, deepen our understanding of who we are in the world that you've given us. And we thank you. Ask your Holy Spirit to come and work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, again, want to actually welcome you guys and gals for coming over. And uh, Justin, it's great to see you. And I, thought, I think I saw Jenny waving at me earlier. Hi, Jenny. Good to have you guys back, okay? So we have been in a series this quarter on the book of Genesis, chapter 1 through 3. And to date, we've spent some time, thanks to David's reflection and thinking and study, on the question of what does Genesis tell us about how we should perceive reality. Genesis 1 through 3, in essence, is a beginning setting for a worldview that's been embraced by the Jewish and the Christian communities now for thousands of years. Now, every one of you, whether you know it or not, has a worldview. You may have a very organized, reflected on, t tested, you know, studied worldview, 
Or you may just be kind of cruising through life and just kind of things you picked up here and there and you kind of lived them out. The purpose of Genesis is to help the reader understand the worldview from God's perspective, God's intentions, what it means to know this God who in the beginning created, and the implications then for us as we live out our lives in the world around us. And so to date, as we've been probing this God, the the thing that we started with, David started with, was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this isn't gobs of gods. This is a singularity. Israel's God is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. He's the God who singularly created the world. They understood that if you knew this God, you knew the ground of all being. You knew the initiator of all things. That you had opportunity to make all of life make sense in a very confused and complicated world. Now, this is written to people who aren't in the beginning. They're in the middle someplace like we are, and they're looking back. And so tonight, we want to press on in this look and move kind of our focus. Don't forget what we've been hearing about God in our initial probes of that. But now we have to go on and look at, well, we saw that God created all this stuff in the world and that he created human beings. And so I want to press us out in our thinking about who are you and who am I? What does it mean to be man and woman in the light of God, in the light of this worldview? And then next week, Jeff's going to come. Hi, Owen. How you doing, buddy? He's writing notes like mad. What are you guys doing? Come on. Be a good example to him. Way to go, bud. Okay? Sorry for that little, you know... Detour there. I just, okay, fun to have you, bud. Okay, so what does it mean to be human? How should I think of my identity? Then next week, Jeff, that's how I got over to Owen. Next week, Jeff will be speaking on the issue of gender, on maleness and femaleness. And then later on, we'll do some stuff on sexuality and work and other issues, okay? So let's look tonight at who am I? Genesis on man and woman. Our primary text will be Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and chapter 2, verses 7 and 9 are the ones that explicitly speak to our theme. Let's read them. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move around the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, picking up the second account of the creation of man and woman. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the animals and all of the birds of the sky. 
And then it goes on and tells that delightful story that Dave, or excuse me, that Jeff will probably get into about a rib and a woman and wow and all that stuff. But that's not my area. So I cut myself off. Was I good, Jeff? Thank you. Okay, okay. Okay, that's right. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be good tonight, okay? So who is man and woman? How should we think about ourselves if we are pursuing or thinking in terms of a Judeo-Christian worldview? How should we communicate to others when they say, who are we, who am I, and what is life about? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some assertions that Genesis makes in these texts. Okay, the first one is that man and woman are, you and I that is, are created by the will of God, and we are formed from the same complex materials that form the earth and the other creatures. Okay, now we heard that, right? That he formed man out of the dust, and that he formed the creatures out of the dust of the earth. Now, there's some things that I think we should hold in tension and awareness in light of that. We are not cosmic accidents. The scripture goes directly and challenges the dominant, atheistic, naturalistic worldview that says you are a cosmic happenstance. It's a rather nice happenstance, but nevertheless a meaningless one. There is no real reason that life exists. It just does. There is no real reason for you existing other than you are the fastest swimmer in the pool of some 250 million possibilities when mom and dad did that thing you don't like to think about. I mean, you don't like mom and dad to think about them doing it, okay? So we live with this dominant view today that we are an accident, that there is no moral basis for us, there's no existential reality there's nothing beyond the here, the now, and the dirt. Genesis says, not true. It says you're going to have to weigh this more seriously. You're going to have to come to terms with things. And you're going to have to weigh the competing worldviews. And so we're not a cosmic accident, it says. Our existence, it tells us, was intentional. That it was from the mind and the heart, the desire and the pleasure of God that you and I exist today. We, though, like the rest of the animal kingdom, number two, are made from dust. We are all complex carbon-based creatures. So we have a very close relationship to the rest of the creation. We're not angels. We're not ethereal spirits. We were made intentionally with a body that houses and holds all the capacities that God intends for us to live out the kind of life, the kinds of realities that he first created in hope and love. And so we're all, in that sense, complex carbon creatures. You know, our chemistry and our structures are to varying degrees a lot like the rest of the living creatures. Now, I remember as a young student, uh, you know, being and, and coming to faith as a sophomore, wrestling with this, you know, how unique and different am I, and how much am I not very unique at all? I knew I was weird and awkward, but that's a different topic, okay? You know, I remember thinking about this thing that came out, that 96% 
of our DNA makeup is the same as chimpanzees. Now, this was distressing to me because I was of the mind that anything that's that similar must be from the same thing or like the same thing. I was reading one time, though, in a book, and it really struck me. It made me laugh when I read it. My, oh, my, what 4% difference makes. But we have to recognize that you shouldn't be surprised at all if you're not a science student or if you are, that, that there's great similarities. We're all made out of the same stuff. God only made so much kind of stuff, I have, apparently, and he created everything in different dynamics out of those basic complex compounds and realities. And so those who say, oh, because there's similarity, there must be a kind of you know, systematic congruency, and that must mean that we're all of the same type. No, 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 no. We are uniquely different than the rest of the stuff. And yet we're uniquely similar. And so when people talk to you and say, oh, you, got, you throw away all science. No, we don't throw away science. We just know that there is something greater than empiricism. Something greater than just the stuff, looking at the stuff, quantifying it, looking at mathematically and saying, voila, we come to this kind of conclusion. No, God has said there's a bigger, richer, more dynamic conclusion to come to. We need to remember that we're part of the ecology of the created world. That God made us for the earth, and he expects us to live in it. That he doesn't expect us to flee from it or be escapist from it. That his desire was that we would be in it, and that we would be a certain part of the whole. That we're part of the ecosystems. That we both affect the world we live in, and we're affected by it. And this is part of God's will. We share with the rest of the living creatures also the capacity to bring forth life after its own kind. We, like them, play in the, you know, kind of the, the playground of creation. We get to be procreators. Shirley and I have procreated a number of times now. And our children are procreating, and we're helping to fill the earth, okay? And we, but we also create in other ways. God makes beautiful things out of dust, we say, right? And he does. He makes all kinds of beautiful things out of dirt. And we, too, like potters and artists, I'm glad you're sitting right down here, dear. You know, our resident artist, you know, Kelly, representing all artistic people, artistic people in, the, in, the, in Western, okay, that there is this capacity in us to see and to create beauty. Now, God does it ex nihilo, out of nothing. We do it out of all the somethings that God has created for us. And so we have this incredible opportunity to see and feel and identify and be in a tangible but temporal way creators with God. And I think that's all pretty cool. And so here we are, we're made with intent, we're made with purpose. It's no wonder the psalmist, in being a reflective kind of chap that he was, he wasn't so busy gaming and stuff that he couldn't think, he said one time in a poem that he was writing, Psalms 139, verse 14, if you want to know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now I have a feeling in the depression of our culture, where you've been reduced to nothing but chemical chance and compounds of mathematical equations, 
where you're given a number instead of a name so often, and you run through the entrails of a computer, where you really can identify with certain movies where you feel like you're stuck in some mechanistic world that's on feeling and on moving and on purposeful. What a fabulous thing to turn to somebody next to you and say, I heard that you're gloriously, fearfully, wonderfully made. Go ahead and... Okay, okay. Uh, some of you now have asked each other out. You're going out for pizza. Come on back here, okay? Now, I wonder if you really believe that. Not in an arrogant way, not in some, yeah, I'm He-Man, you know, the barbarian or something, yeah? No, no, I am knit together, the psalmist says, by the handiwork of God. And the, there's something glorious, something awe inspiring. I almost would say we're awesome, but only God is awesome, but we're awe-filled and we're wonderful creations. And so the, the creator says at the end of our story here, Genesis 131, he looks over all that he has created and he says after having created man and woman and told them to go ahead and fill and subdue the earth and to procreate and all that kind of fun stuff, etc., etc. And they joined together in marriage, etc. It says that God looked at everything he created. And what does he do? He finds pleasure in it. He says, it's very, very good. And if God finds pleasure in the world... If God finds pleasure in his creation, it means that we too can find pleasure in his pleasure. That we too can find joy, even in the midst of our very difficult and combative world in terms of values and vision. And so, as I was thinking about this, I thought, wow, we're a lot like the rest of the creation, the animated creation. So the question still is out there, though. Are we unique? Now, I don't mean are we individually unique. We are. Nobody has your eyes, right? So you can do that visual thing and get into places that nobody else can get into. Nobody has your fingerprints. We know this, right? Nobody has your exact anything. Do even identical twins, are they exact? Not exact exact. And so you're unique that way. You know, you are, you are unique in that sense. You each have unique personalities. One of the things I like about this community is you can ex exercise legally within appropriate moral boundaries to the uniqueness of your personality. The person next to you might look at you and go, you're weird. And you can just look at them and say, you're right. <laughs> and you can celebrate it, okay? Because guess what? We are not all the same. And God says that his joy in us is very, very good. And the worst thing in all is the way our culture more and more says, oh, you've got to be unique. You've got to be your own you. You've got to be something special. And then they conform you so you all have the exact same tattoos. You wear the exact same clothes. You're all worried about the exact same, you know, tears in your jeans, etc., and you go, I'm so unique. I thought I was unique as a hippie. I've so told this story before. Some of you have heard it. You know, I was. I was like a hundred million other hippies. You know, I'm like a penguin. Flapping in the middle of a million penguins. Go, I just got to be me. Okay? 
That isn't the basis of your uniqueness. We are horribly conformist, aren't we? Let's just admit it. We want to fit in. We want to be. But in your, what God is creating in you and what God wants to work in and through you is uniquely his gift and his calling for you. And nobody else can do and be what he has designed you to be and do. And so there's both individualism, and yet we can be part of something greater than ourselves. So are we unique? Yes, we're unique in that way, okay? Now, Genesis asserts that men and women are unique from the other creations in some very profound ways, okay? Now, we need to be careful, I think, of this, because as I say up here, it's easy to overstate our differences with the other living creatures, and then all of a sudden information comes to us and we go with like the 96% thing and we freak out. I remember being told as a youngster in high school, middle school, that only human beings were had self-awareness, self-consciousness. But we know that's not true anymore. Only, um, only human beings communicate in complex ways. Well, welcome to the world of dolphins, you know? And so, you know, only human beings are intellectually capable to learn complex ideas. Welcome to the dog, okay? And so they have different capacities, and we have to be careful where we say we're unique, or otherwise we're going to get evidence and goes, oh, that isn't what makes me unique. Well, if it isn't those kinds of things, well, we certainly have more of it maybe than the dog, the dolphin, and the chimpanzee up there. The real question, I think, for us is to understand who we are in light of Genesis, in light of God, the creator, existing. How does Genesis say we're different? And how does that different shape our purpose? Okay? So, what does Genesis say about that? Well, Genesis asserts that men and women are different because they are the image bearers of God. That's the language of our text. Let us create man and woman in our own image, God says. You can see the text up there. It, that's never said in creation. It's never articulated that way until the creation of man and woman. Notice that it is man and woman who are the image bearers of God. Not unlike some of the religious values and viewpoints, worldviews that existed around Israel, where it was only man that was in the image of God. In particular, Mesopotamian, the Assyrian, and uh, later the Babylonians, they said only the king, only one guy of all guys, but never a chick is the image of God. Only the king is an image of God. Here we have Genesis being wondrously democratic. It's like the death of the rights of king, you know, the, the divine right of kings right here in Genesis saying, no, 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 kings don't have different bloods. They don't have different carbon compounds. You all carry the image of God. All men and all women are image bearers. It is the thing that is said that is unique about us, particularly unique. The first not differentiated thing from the rest of the creation, animated animalistic creation. We are God's image bearers. Now, here's some good news for you because we sang that song a minute ago that talked a bit about our problem. 
And our problem is our rebellion against God's love and breaking the boundaries of his heart. Genesis 9.6 and James 3.9 both affirm that even fallen humanity retains in some degree and sense this fundamental reality that we are image bearers of God. It has been this premise that has caused historically the Jewish and the Christian community to have a very high view of human value, a very protective view. It's this kind of sense that people aren't junk, that people aren't unwanted, that things are not to be thrown away as if the people aren't to be thrown away as if they're a thing. It's this kind of motivation that caused young Christian believers in the Roman Empire to go out and scour in the garbage dumps where babies were exposed and bring them home and raise them themselves while they were unwanted by the paganism of the, of the Greco-Roman pantheon. They were wanted by God. They were made in the image of God. And God doesn't make junk. Amen? This could save you tens of thousands of counseling hours and millions of dollars. And you'll impoverish counselors, but I'm not worried about them right now. We try to find our identity in so many ways, and our culture rips it down. Or we try to find it the ways the culture offers it, and we find it rips out our soul. But God says, you're made in my image. Well, what is... It means to be made in the image of God. What does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, here's what it's not, first of all. It is clear from all of Scripture, and I give you one in particular in Deuteronomy. It is clear from all of Scripture that we, are not, that we do not look like God, image, idea. We don't look like God the way that my sons look like Shirley and I. Okay? It's not image like, oh, God's body is like my body, which means it's pudgy and short, okay? It's not that way. Now, you probably know that, but that isn't the way people thought in the broader world at the time this was first being read by the followers of God. People thought, oh, image, we know what image, image, idol. And that's where the spirit of God hides. And so, you, you know, if, if God is a bull, then you make a bull. If he's like this, then you make that, right? And so what does Deuteronomy say? No graven images, no replications, no physicality is to be made of me whatsoever, he says to his people. Why? Because God is not physical. We learn from the scripture that he's not composed of matter, that God is spirit. And amazingly, God's word in Genesis says that we, not idols, are the ones that bear his likeness into the world. And so you don't need to make idols, not even American idols. Okay, I'm sorry. Cheap shot, Brady. Quit it. Okay. Okay? But there are other ways that we do carry his resemblance. We're like God in the following ways. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing else is not anything like this. It just means we are like this, right? We do have self-awareness. We do think reflectively. We do think at times rationally. Well, it's not true that we're always rational because 
It's irrational what Adam and Eve do in breaking the boundaries of God's love. It is irrational when you and I go and pursue death, the tree of death, over against the tree of life. It is irrational when women give away themselves to men who aren't willing to marry them in desperate hope that they'll be loved by somebody that doesn't love them enough to commit. It's irrational. Not a single amen. You just have to know that about yourself. We are a little nuts. But we're talking about what we used to be, and we're talking about what we're going to be, okay? So this is true of us, right? Uh, We're unique in that we are people who gather, retain, record, and pass on our history. In fact, it doesn't appear that any other part of the creation does this except God. God creates history, creates time and space, and then he tells us about our history, and he does all kinds of revelations to us, but we do that in a kind of finite way. Those of you who hate history, you're checking out. Just stick around. I'll say sex later for you or something, okay? And I'll get you back, okay? But history, here's this amazing thing. I remember, again, as a young believer, coming across a book called Orthodoxy, which sounded as boring as dust, But actually, it was by a guy named uh, G.K. Chesterton, so it was really enlightening and humorous. And Chesterton is grappling in one of his essays about Darwinian ideas that were nothing but, you know, elevated apes. There's nothing more unique or profound about us. And he, he says, what are we to say about this? And you're ready for this long, complex essay by this genius from Britain, right? And he says, no chimp ever drew pictures of his day on his cave wall. Man is artist. Whoa. Whoa. So we may be alike, but we're different. We're different. Man is historian. Woman is historian. We collect memories, and we preserve and pass them on. This is unique to us, and it's a part of the way we're somewhat like God. We're like God because we're sensing beings. We see, we hear, we feel. All of these things are said to be true of God. Okay? That he sees our lives. That he hears our words. That he feels our pain. Now, I know that's, you thought that was Bill Clinton, but that, that's God too. Okay? Some of you don't know who Bill Clinton is. I'm sorry. You know, I'm showing my age here. Okay? That's God, that God feels. He feels joy. He feels sorrow. You can grieve Him. He's grieved by the things that destroy us. And so we, again, in a finite way, have this, this possibility of being emotionally alive, of being sensual in the right sense, feeling, seeing, hearing, touching, and tasting. We're like God in that we're free moral, choosing beings. We make choices. And we're a being that even though our freedom has boundaries, we make real choices in our real lives in a day-to-day way. That we choose over and against things. Sometimes it's really important, and sometimes it's what kind of topping do you want on pizza? I don't care, honey. Let's just have them both. Okay? Well, that's why I'm a pudgy God, okay, or image of God, right? Okay, so we make choices. 
We're morally reflective beings. Even if we're not moral in our conduct, we have an insistent conscience that says that history and existence is moral. We know that there is wickedness and goodness. We know there are powers that enrich and powers that destroy. We know that it is wicked to gossip and slander another person. And we know that it is praiseworthy and good to affirm and be kind and show healing grace, don't we? And we knew that before we knew God. Because it is written on our conscience that indeed the world has this reality of good and evil. Well, let's press on. We can think of our being that way, kind of what's called the ontological ground of our, our, our us, the real us, the inner you know, substance of us. But we can also understand what it means to be an image bearer in the way we live. That is, it can be seen at the level of what we do. We are image bearers. We carry the nature, the reflection of God's, not only in that we share in certain characteristics with him, but what we do bears witness to him, shows him into the world. And it worked. This is, I think, quite amazing. You know, I don't think we stop and think of this very often, or at least maybe I'm just making confession and you're not like me and that would be a hallelujah. That would be a blessing if you're not. I forget sometimes that I am a human being whom God has made and then made room to share reality with. His reality, his purposes, his movements in the world, that he invites me in to his creation and allows me to be a part of his gig. I think this is rather amazing. You know, I remember once being asked by a girl when I was in junior high to go roller skating. And I thought that was amazing. Because I was kind of a geek. Not kind of. That was an incomplete confession. I was a geek. And I wasn't very popular with the girls. And this girl was even cute in my eyes. And she was nice enough to ask me to her party. And I thought, wow, this is like dying and getting born again before you knew you could get born again. <laughs> that somebody that you look up to esteem would make room for you in their lives. And this is what Genesis says God does for us. And we ought to say, hallelujah! Okay, don't say that. I'm just being Pentecostal tonight. You know, I figure those folks from Wenatchee are probably pretty Pentecostal, and so I'm just trying to really, you know, for you. Okay, this group is kind of sedate, real reflective, sometimes boring. You know, it's okay. Okay, so we're given a share by God. Now, some of you, when you get married, we, you know, I said we'd say sex, so we get some of you back. Okay. Think about it. What do you get to do, men and women? You could be like a middle manager for Starbucks. Or you could help bring about the next generation of humanity. Or maybe you could do both. Hey, That God puts such awesome things into such normal creatures is amazing. It makes me happy when I think about it. Okay? Okay? 
Now, what is, how does this show? Well, he says we're going to subdue, we're going to rule, and we're going to have dominion. Now, those are fighting words here at Western, aren't they? You know, the ecology department just rolled over in its proverbial grave, well, grass-covered grave, but nevertheless, this is the stuff. <coughs> they say that's the problem in the world. It's that subduing, ruling, dominion stuff. Okay? So let's talk about it just for a minute. These words point fundamentally to the fact that we are uniquely formed with a purpose. God says, let us make humankind in our image that they might, and then it says rule and, you know, procreate and da-da-da, you know, and take care of the the creation, etc., and take dominion. Now, God had a purpose from the beginning. This purpose, this commission, was that we should care for his creation in the same spirit, with the same creative commitments, with the same kind of noble enriching works that he first modeled to us in the creation itself. Now you have to remember, these words were said when we were pristine. We weren't fallen. We weren't greedy beggars. We weren't irrational human beings that would destroy the very thing that we're part of. We weren't the people who, in order to get more and more and more, would strip and rape and pillage more and more and more of the earth. We weren't the people then that God has to speak to in the book of Revelation that he says, those who destroy the earth shall be destroyed. Yes, that is in the book of Revelation. You can go find it. Okay? No, we're in our pristine position then. We were created and lived in the boundaries. We were obedient to his heart and mind. But what it says to me is that man and woman were given the energy and the vision and the wisdom to carry out the mission. And the mission is still there for God's people. We're still to care for the creation, for all of the creation, humanity, the animals, the trees, the whole nine yards. We're not to worship it, but we're to tend it. We're to be gardeners. So what that really tells us is that Genesis says that man and woman are vice regents under a creator, gardener, king. Because ruling and all those, those are all king words, right? So what are you? What am I? I am a vice regent under the gardener king. The first thing he does is he makes the world as a garden. And so... Those of you that love gardening, you're ahead of the rest of us. But we are going to have to get our gloves on and go to work. Because that's what God created us for. That in his name and in his stead to show glory by bearing his image into the world that cares for his world. In particular, he shows throughout all the scripture a particular concern for man and woman, for humankind. Okay? So here we are, we're elevated. And as the psalmist says in Psalms 8, we're crowned with a bit of God's glory that we should be invited. What this means is that all of your work, any legitimate, legitimate noble work, is a working of your image bearing. And so the teacher amongst us does the noble work of educating The person who's an engineer amongst us can learn to build things of beauty and structural dependency that help us make the world a better place. 
people who are inventors, people who are doctors and nurses and even lawyers who speak and seek truth, okay? Judges, even pastors and prophets, all are meant together to help work the toil, the work the soil, to toil for the will in the garden of the Lord. And so there is no work that is not God's work, and that's all I'm going to say because I think that's Kelly's sermon. Sorry, dear, I kind of went in there, didn't I? Okay. Okay. Genesis search, finally, last big concept, that we are crafted peculiarly, particularly for relationship with God himself. Now, we have no idea whether dolphins relate to God. We don't. So I don't know if anything else is crafted, particular or peculiarly, for a relationship to God, but I know that Genesis says we are. The Genesis says that God breathes his own empowering breath of life into us, and we become a living soul. But that, you know, animals were called living souls too. So maybe dogs do go to heaven for all I know. And I don't know. I do not know, and neither do any of you. I don't care what Walt Disney says. He lies all the time. <laughs> Just don't trust him. But it'd be kind of cool if Bojangles was in heaven. This thing that we're called to, this, this idea of relationship, this idea of community, this idea of intimacy, not in the sexual sense, but in, in, the, in the bonding sense with God. This whole idea tells us that God's will for us is not simply to use us. That my identity is not that I'm some kind of utilitarian tool in God's great belt. That he pulls out and uses until it's used up. No, I am one of God's children. I'm a son of mud man who's been breathed alive over again by the Spirit of God. And yes, God invites me to work with him. So I am used that way. But I am not abused. In fact, working for the Lord is the greatest joy we can ever have. It can make your science classes Hallelujah times. Okay, maybe that's a stretch of faith for some of you. But try it, okay? Human beings, though, we're told, were made for intimacy. Our spirit infused by his spirit. Somehow in the beginning there was unity and harmony. And that wonderful Jewish concept called shalom, where everything that was needed was present. It was a perfect wholeness for man and woman, like a perfect garden. Of all the pictures of the stories in Genesis 1 through 3, my favorite to talk about in terms of intimacy and the idea of being in relationship with God is that one that comes, sadly, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But it's a beautiful picture before you know just how sad it is. It's where God is walking in the cool of the evening, and he's seeking out Adam and Eve. And he says, Adam, where are you? And they're off hiding in the bushes because they 
broken the boundaries and created in their own lives a spiritual and psychological and relational cascading destructive direction. They've sinned and they've fallen. But God comes searching, comes looking for them. And the flow and the nature of the text is, is that this is what God did with Adam. At the end of the day, in the cool of the evening, when the heat of the Middle East was off, when a man would come home from work, he would walk with his friend, and they'd kind of download the day. And so here is God coming for his appointment to hear how, how did it go naming the zebras today or whatever God talks with Adam about. I don't know, you know. How's it going with that Eve thing, you know? You still enjoying that? You know, what... I, what what do guys talk about? You know, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay? It's appropriate stuff. Okay? Later in Genesis, we'll meet Enoch and Abraham, and we'll be told in the scripture that about both of them the same thing. They were friends with God, for they walked with God. God's will in creating you is that you might know the joy of walking with him. That you might know, as Jesus says in John 15, friendship with God. Now, I'm not going to be naive. It is not easy to figure out how to communicate to an unseen being. It is not easy to learn how to talk with God when we're so used to talking to one another. Although now, most of the time, we do speak to unseen beings, and so maybe it'll come easier. Facebook might help us, you know? And so this is who we were. This is who we were meant to be. And this is who God continues to pursue to remake us into. That's the message of Genesis, and that's the message of the New Testament. You know, in closing, you know, sometimes we learn best if we could just see the thing that we're supposed to be. Can we really ever see in a fallen world or get any real glimpse or sense of a fully human being again? Can we get this on television? No. Can we get this in the movies? No. Can we get this amongst the rich and the powerful? No. The poor? No. But there is one place that God has chosen to make the fullness of himself known in time and space and human flesh. And we can see in the meaning the stories, the actions and the words of Jesus of Nazareth, the true Adam, the man who, though tempted, never sinned, the man who never violates the dignity and purpose and intents of God, the man who lives fully submitted to the word and the boundaries of God's heart and mind. And so, if you read Genesis, you have to despair about what is lost. Because we're really not like that kind of purity, that kind of joy. But Jesus wants to rebirth it in us. Jesus wants to rescue us from the effects of chapter 3 of Genesis. 
Jesus wants to make us over again and restore to us the works that God had established for us from the beginnings of creation. The greatest work of all, to be an open, joyful image bearer of him. Look around. Look around your campus. Look around at the the conflict and the, uh, the competing worldviews and how destructive they are to any sense of uniqueness or dignity, any sense of lasting hope. And then look at what God says to us. I'd like to close with this thought. Genesis offers us a profound, rich world, one and two. Jesus offers to recreate it and to move us toward it. I would like to suggest this. If we're made in the image of God, if Genesis is right, and we're made in the image of God, then we'll only discover our real identity when we are in a real relationship with Him. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. He makes room for you in his life and his purposes. Lord Jesus, I pray you'll stir our hearts. Whether we know you or just considering you, we pray you'd stir our hearts as we sing in response to you, as we pray, as we think, as we go our way. Stir our hearts. This stuff, Lord, I know has to be more than a moment of reaction. It has to become a conviction of how we see reality. Help us to see the goodness of the Creator Father. Help us to see His pursuit. Help us to see His pursuit in you and the joy of the Spirit to breathe born over life in us. And help us to walk in joy to your glory as we do your works in the earth. 